Welcome, and uh, thank you for joining us today. I am Brad Bowman, Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. We're very glad to have you all join us here today, both in person and online, for a discussion on the West Bank. In the past 12 to 18 months, we've seen a steady uptick in violence in the West Bank. Many contributing factors have been cited, including a frustration with the status quo, particularly among young Palestinians, rival factions competing for dominance, and of course, external forces fomenting violence. A mosaic of terrorist groups, some backed by the Islamic Republic of Iran, have found the West Bank ripe ground for plotting violence and attacking Israelis. It's now clear that the Palestinian Authority has lost control of parts of the West Bank. FDD's Israel program recently produced a live and comprehensive map showing the timing and location of violence perpetrated by terrorists, as well as responses from Israeli security forces. You can find a link to that interactive resource on the event page on FDD's website. It is an impressive resource, in my opinion, and I encourage you to take a look at it. Today, we want to dive in a bit more into the details to discuss both what the data shows and how we got here, some context. More importantly, we're here to discuss what American and allied policymakers can do to reduce violence and promote stability. Before I introduce our speakers, a bit of background about FDD. For more than 20 years, FDD has operated on a nonpartisan policy as a nonpartisan policy institute focused on national security and foreign policy. FDD is a source for timely research, analysis, and policy options. We host three centers on American power in the areas of military and political power, economic and financial power, and cyber and technology innovation, all with the aim of producing actionable research recommendations that strengthen security of the United States and its allies. As an important note, FDD takes neither foreign government nor foreign corporate funding and never will. Today's program, hosted by FDD's Israel program, is one of the many we host throughout the year. For more information on the work we do, we encourage you to visit our website at fdd.org. With that, I am pleased to introduce our panel today. My colleague, Enya Kravine, uh, serves as Senior Director of FDD's Israel Program and National Security Network for Mid-Career Professionals. She joined FDD after nearly seven years at APAC and has also had previous experience working on several political campaigns and as Director of Congressional Affairs of the Israel Allies Foundation. Uh, next to her, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus served in Israel Defense Forces for 24 years as a combat commander in Lebanon and the Gaza Strip, as a military diplomat, foreign relations expert, and spokesperson. He's delivered hundreds of security and strategic briefings to foreign groups and dignitaries in Israel. He is a uh, today, he is a member of the Israel Defense and Security Forum. Last but not least, my colleague Jonathan Shanzer serves as Senior Vice President for Research at FDD. John previously worked as a terrorism finance analyst at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. He's written four books on the Middle East, including his latest book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War, which challenges and corrects some of the wildly inaccurate news reported during that conflict. By way of format, I'll moderate a conversation with uh, today's panelists for about 40 minutes or so, uh, and then I'll give the audience here in person a chance to ask any questions for the remainder of the time. 
So with that, uh, I'd like to get started, if that sounds good. Again, welcome and, and excited to sit down with all of you. John, if I may, I'd like to go to you first, uh, perhaps uh, to further set the stage for our discussion. Um, perhaps an understatement, there's clearly a, a tense situation in the West Bank right now. If you wouldn't mind, could you walk us through the series of events that led us to where we are today? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, pleasure to be on uh, the dais with, with, uh, with all of you guys. Um, and, and thank you all for joining uh, here in person um, and online. Um, uh, I think if, if we want to look at kind of more recent events, this recent wave of attacks started in March. Uh, there were a series of attacks that took place um, across Israel, Jerusalem, uh, Beersheba, um, and, and a couple of other places. They were ramming attacks, stabbing attacks, uh, a range of different violence perpetrated um, uh, by Palestinian actors that ended up killing 19 Israelis. Um, the, and this was between March and, I think, May. Uh, so over a two-month period, we watched this uptick in violence, and so the IDF uh, made the decision that it was time to go into the West Bank to try to address the root cause of these problems, to target some of the, the most active militants, and to look for the cells and the operational centers. Um, and um, they launched an operation called Breaking the Wave or Wave Breaker, depending on how you want to translate it. Um, and um, that's been kind of an ongoing thing ever since. Now, on the one hand, um, this has been, I think, a very positive thing because the IDF is now doing what the Palestinian Security Forces has not been able to do, right? There are actually now pockets of uh, the West Bank that are really no-go zones uh, for Palestinian Security Forces. It's really difficult for, um, for folks to enter, let alone operating there. The IDF is the only force that is capable of doing so. We're talking about places like Janine and Nablus and Tulkarim. Um, and these are major population centers in the West Bank. Um, so on the one hand, Israel's taking care of business and, and neutralizing threats. The problem, of course, is that this is not exactly welcomed by rank-and-file Palestinians, right? The everyday Palestinians who are watching the IDF going into the West Bank, going out of the West Bank, arresting people, killing people, etc., they're outraged because this is the territory that they have decided is going to be their homeland at some point in time. So it's an affront to the Palestinian nationalist movement, but it is also helping the Palestinian Authority maintain the control that it cannot control right now. Amidst all of this, there, is ongoing, there are ongoing questions about leadership. Mahmoud Abbas is now well into his 80s. He is 19 years into a four-year term. Um, he is not exactly the picture of health. Uh, quit smoking, but uh, now he's vaping. Um, he's fallen asleep in meetings um, and does not bring to the job the sorts of energy and attention that really is required. Um, but he's become an Arab strongman in every sense of the word. Um, there was a time where there was an active competition for those that might replace him. What we're hearing right now is that uh, those would-be competitors are less interested in taking over the West Bank while things are out of control. I mean, who wants to take control of a territory where there are no go zones and there are active terrorist attacks and, and things like this? So leadership is flagging on the Palestinian side. The terrorist attacks continue. The Israelis are involved. You can get a sense that it is very volatile. The last thing that I'll just say is amidst all of this, we've got a change in Israeli government. 
And this Israeli government is not well loved by the Palestinian population. Now, there are those that are saying right now within the Palestinian population that their violence is a direct response to this incoming government and their policies. This, of course, I think goes against everything that we've been watching since March. It's a very convenient excuse for explaining what's happening right now. But don't let that um, blind you to the fact that the current dynamic right now could feed additional violence as tension grows. So just a few things going on. And just several, a few. And, and just several actors involved. Uh, let's, let's dig down a little bit more on those actors. And, and I'll come to you if I may. Um, what are some of the groups that are taking up arms in the West Bank? And from your perspective, what is motivating them? Right. So I think um, before you dive into that, I think it's worth taking just a step back and, and talking about the Palestinian security forces. So um, we have in the West Bank uh, a situation where there is a, a police force, a security force that is intact. The history of that is, you know, in the in the uh, seminal peace negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians in the early 90s, the Oslo Accords, it was sort of mutually decided there should be security forces in the, in the territories that were responsible for their own security. Um, and they, we had a couple iterations. The first iteration of these Palestinian security forces were under the leadership of Yasser Arafat, who was a revolutionary kind of guy and sort of the leader of the Palestinian movement for decades. And um, that was in the lead up to the Second Intifada. And during the Second Intifada, you saw these security forces taking up arms against, the, against Israel, against the IDF. And in the course of that um, large-scale uprising, which officially lasted for about five years, the security forces were largely decimated. And when um, Mahmoud Abbas came to power and there was these, this new sort of hope for peace on the horizon and um, more international sort of, uh, uh, sort of coming into the, into the problem set, it was decided that the Palestinian security forces would be rebuilt with the help of the United States and the international, uh, and the international community. I think the Europeans are in there and I think Australia, a couple others maybe, but led and spearheaded by the U.S. So the U.S. has been um, actively sort of helping to professionalize the Palestinian security forces with the goal of, of creating a situation where you have um, a Palestinian security force who have a monopoly of arms in the territories and especially in the West Bank. Gaza is a little bit of a separate story. We'll talk about the West Bank for now. So currently there are about 30,000 estimated um, security forces in the West Bank under the control of Palestinian Authority. It's one of the highest um, police to civilian ratio ratios in the world. Um, but it's, um, it's been fulfilling its mandate for about 15 year, over 15 years now of trying to keep the status quo. Now, in that context, you have groups that want to destroy the status quo, right? And you know, a lot of those are known to us. We have Hamas and um, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and others, like Brad said, a, mo a true mosaic of actors with different sort of motivators. But they've all been on the scene for a long time and they've all been working at disrupting this modus vivendi that the Palestinian Authority and Israel have created and that has resulted in s relative stability. And I use the word relative stability uh, very purposefully. So, so who are these mosaic of actors? So, like I said, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, many of whom are based in Gaza at the moment, but they also have international sort of leadership in the in the diaspora, in the Palestinian diaspora. Um, a couple of things of note, right, that are different, I think, in this most recent wave uh, than they have been in the past. So, uh, I'll start with with something called the Lion's Den, and folks who watch this space. Um, may have heard that name. It's because it was a it was a new phenomenon, and I I was watching it last year, and there was sort of an arc of the lion's den, 
Um, it began in September when a very charismatic young Palestinian man who took up arms against the IDF, against the Israeli security forces, was killed and went out in a blaze of glory. Um, and in, in his sort of memory, they formed this group of, I mean, it's, it's really, it's almost like a street gang. I mean, these are very localized kids, young guys that grew up together that decide that this is going to be their response to these, these nightly raids that the IDF has been launched um, to sort of defend their, defend their homes, defend their territories, defend their, their, their town. And these guys were, like I said, young, extremely charismatic, were able to use social media to gather a very impressive following very quickly. Um, I think within a couple of weeks or maybe months, they had more followers on TikTok and Telegram than Hamas had built in, in, since the beginning of those platforms. So like I said, there were some, they were new. And another very interesting thing about these guys um, which I found particularly worrying is that they were not affiliated with the traditional sort of terror groups that we're familiar with. So it tend, you know, the, these, these groups and these organizations tend to be very factional, right? Um, and these, these guys' message to, 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 the, to the people um, in the West Bank, to Palestinians, was drop the factions, pick up the rifle, we're all in this together, and in, in an attempt to sort of um, collectivize the movement, right? And I thought this this was a very troubling indicator around October of last year. They weren't big. They were always very localized in Nablus. They were probably around, I think it was estimated, 20 to 30 at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they were carrying out some pretty lethal attacks against Israelis. Um, the, the way that ended was within, I think, a 10-day period, the IDF went in and took out most of their leadership, either through arrests or um, firefights. Um, the PA, I believe, ended up arresting or bringing into their fold one of, the, one of the leaders who was wounded. And it still goes on, but not at the level or um, not, at the, not, not functioning at as high a level as it did late last year. So that's, that's one interesting phenomenon. I think it's something to watch because um, these guys really... Uh, had a sort of a romantic, inspirational presence in, uh, uh, in the Palestinian sort of mindset, and they you see you see polling, which shows that they were very sort of loved and popular among the Palestinian people in in the West Bank. So, so I would say that was one thing that sort of stood out and something to watch. Um, it, it's it's unclear, you know, what what's going to happen with that. I, the other really interesting phenomenon, which I think. Uh, sort of played out last year is, the, is what Hamas was doing. So Hamas has always been present in the West Bank. They, there's, a political, uh, there's a political wing and a military wing, as is pretty common with, with some of these organizations. And their base is in Gaza. They're sovereign in Gaza. They rule it. Um, and they, it seems that they've taken a much more pragmatic course uh, with their with the way they're handling sort of the Gaza, right? So they have been, it's been pretty quiet on the Gaza front. Seems like they've they're working towards rebuilding from the last conflict with Israel, um, and they have looked like they don't want to get into a direct conflict with the IDF. However, in the West Bank, they do seem to be making gains, and they are you know they do seem to be increasing in popularity, and they do seem to be um, perpetrating more and more lethal terrorist attacks in the past couple of years. So. It, that, that's a sort of a new strategy of Hamas. It's kind of been sort of identified, and John and I heard it from the, sort of the right people in Israel that this is something that they believe is going on, that they've consolidated their power in Gaza, and now they have their scope set on, um, set on the West Bank. So that's another you know, troubling phenomenon. Again, the Palestinian security forces should be equipped to deal with that. Um, 
we saw we've seen a little bit of deterioration of the their hold on sort of the monopoly of arms like like uh, John and Brad said Janine and Nablus particularly are two centers that seem that they've completely lost control so we're not you know we're, we're watching it we're not sure how it's going to play out but um, it seems that for now there is some there there does seem to be some equilibrium and, and things are moving forward sort of in the same way. Thank you, Anya. That, that was outstanding. I really appreciate that. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, let me uh, come to you, if I may. Uh, um, interested, of course, in the Israeli perspective. So what is Israel's perspective on everything that we're discussing here, and how is this, uh, this wave of violence perceived on the ground in Israel? Happy to be here. And uh, I think uh, what uh, both of you said is very uh, agreeable. I would only add one thing about Lions Den and the new organizations is that they are, and I think this point has been made also by Joe Trusman, uh, that they are better equipped and kitted than any other new terror organization or local gang that I've seen, which would lead to an indicate or could lead to the fact that they have different types of funding than your normal other type of uh, uh, local Palestinian militants or gang. And it's something to watch. Uh, they also have had a longer run, and uh, uh, they, the, the uh, uh, efforts made by the IDF that uh, Enya just described uh, happened, but then they kind of, they seem to have resurged a bit, which also indicates that they have um, strong funding and may not only be a local thing, and uh, I know that Israel is also looking and uh, looking at the connections between that organizations and others and uh, outside funding, uh, not only Hamas, but possibly Iran. And we've also seen a tremendous increase in smuggling of weapons mm -hmm. uh, through Jordan, over the Jordan Valley, uh, with the target destination being militant organizations in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank. There's been a uh, three, fourfold rise over the last year in successful interceptions. And as a derivative of that, we can understand that there's also been a significant rise in the successful attempts to smuggle across weapons. So that's happening, more weapons coming in, and there's definitely outside powers that are fueling uh, violence in Judea and Samaria, connecting with what Jonathan said, that there are interests to focus international attention on what's happening in Judea and Samaria, because uh, of the narrative of this current Israeli government that is perceived to be much more oriented on this issue. And then that would, could conveniently overlap with more weapons, more energy, and a loss of control of the Palestinian uh, Authority of various areas. And that could bring the situation to a boil or a confrontation over whatever pretext. Uh, Temple Mount, uh, some other uh, horrible incident. And, uh, you know, so far the Israeli security organizations have been very successful once they kicked in gear after this first wave of attacks that Jonathan described. Uh, very good at undermining and uh, preempting attacks. ISA, Israeli police, and of course the IDF working together in uh, interagency operations. Uh, but it only, we know that it takes one successful large-scale attack with a few Israeli casualties to really turn a combustible situation uh, with totally different dynamics. We've, we've been there in the past. Um, what uh, I think is uh, quite remarkable is the tempo of operations uh, of Israeli security forces, night by night, raiding, 
um, attacking various locations based on very specific uh, intel generated by the ISA, acting upon that in order to preempt. But what's different this time to previous rounds, first or second intifada and the years after that, is that usually after a continued phase of Israeli operations, you usually see a significant decline in enemy activity. This time, we're not seeing that. Mm. And again, that would indicate that there's more fire, more, more things fueling than uh, regular, and Israeli troops are uh, looking at that and assessing uh, what that is. So there's um, a lot of vectors that are really can combine uh, to a, uh, a combustible situation. Thank you for that. You mentioned Joe Trusman, our FTD colleague. He's done absolutely great work on this. And if you're not tracking his, his scholarship, I encourage you to do that. You also mentioned narrative. I heard you use the word narrative. I'd love to kind of come back to you on that, if I may. Based on your previous job, uh, how would you assess some of the international media coverage of the situation on the, in the West Bank? I think it is uh, the level of scrutiny and international focus on what's happening between Israel and the Palestinians, I think, has no peer in uh, other ongoing conflicts in the world uh, in terms of uh, how long it's been uh, at the center or very close to center of attention and how much attention. The amount of uh, journalistic brain power and financial power that is focused on covering this event. And my subjective experience over the years has been one of uh, a very challenging situation to tell an Israeli story and to get the Israeli perspective reflected in international media. Uh, many times I felt that it was um, a set piece from the beginning, whereas there was an event, something happened. Almost no matter what evidence, information, or details Israel would provide, I could have written the story before it was published, knowing what the headline would be and how uh, critical and challenging it would be about Israeli policy, tactics, uh, the uh, use of force by Israeli troops, uh, and everything else related to Israel. I am a very strong believer in journalistic uh, freedom, oversight, and uh, I think it's crucial uh, for to hold every country and every government responsible for its actions, especially the use of force. But I think that the uh, uh, many times that uh, coverage of Israel is uh, perhaps tailored in advance and um, unfairly critical towards Israel in its use of force, uh, while it is, after all, and many people have a tendency, or many journalists have a tendency to forget this, defending its homeland, its citizens, against attacks that are up close and personal. Israel isn't on an expeditionary mission 3,000 miles away from home. Israel is defending its borders and its citizens, and uh, that is something that uh, many times gets uh, lost in uh, media translation. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I hear you suggesting that we've had instances in the past of terrorist groups uh, uh, conducting kinetic operations with the plan that are planned to achieve an information warfare outcome or objective. So violence in the service of a pre-planned information warfare outcome. Is that, am I hearing you right? I think that is by definition what most terrorists want to do. They want to take tactical actions on the ground, uh, compound them by the use of media, and then uh, achieve political aims, 
I think uh, Palestinian organizations were perhaps amongst the first in the world to do this very effectively on a global scale with hijackings, uh, hostage situations, uh, assassinations. Um, Hezbollah has done it exceedingly well and uh, other Palestinian uh, organizations have also done it very well. Charismatic leaders, you mentioned Ar Arafat, uh, but he's one of, uh, of a few others. So that is definitely what we face and uh, I think that Israel has to up its media efforts to provide more facts, more intel, more visuals uh, in a way to tell the world what it is that we're facing and what we're doing to face these threats. Thank you. John, if I may, how is this, uh, what we're seeing now, different um, from or similar to past uprisings or intifadas? Uh, it's a good question. Let me actually just sure, touch please. on two yeah. things that, that Jonathan yeah. just said that I think are, are worth highlighting. First, on the question of funding, mm. um, there is no doubt that there is an Iranian angle to this. Mm. Uh, we've seen it uh, in, in multiple reports and in a lot of our discussions with stakeholders around the region. Uh, and there's also a Turkey element to this. For those that are not aware, Turkey, a NATO ally, has been a longstanding patron uh, of Hamas, and they have a number of West Bank officials that are based there, uh, most notably a guy named Saleh Harori, who has been at the center of a lot of, uh, of Hamas activity, and um, it remains an ongoing problem. The Turks and the Israelis are trying to work out a new arrangement between them, uh, trying to rekindle an alliance. I happen to think that that's going to be very difficult to do, so long as Turkey is supporting this kind of activity. The other thing that I'll just note is, Jonathan mentioned the tempo of activity by the IDF. What's important to remember here is, so there's this almost nightly activity in the West Bank with the breaking the wave operation, and then there is the ongoing kinetic activity almost every night in Syria, their air operations. If you think about what the IDF is doing, the volume of its work right now, it is really mind-boggling. And by the way, that doesn't even include the cyber stuff. It doesn't include the planning on Iran. It doesn't include the kind of regular security issues. And there's no conflict in Gaza, thank thankfully. Right now, there's planning for what's going on in the north in Lebanon. So there is a massive volume that somehow the IDF is absorbing. And I, I'm uh, often in awe uh, of the way that the IDF handles multiple threat streams at any given time. Now, as for the question of how does this compare to past uprisings, first of all, let me just say, this is not a third intifada. We're not there yet. A lot of people have been asking this question, and I think it's a fair question to ask. But you know, when we look at past intifadas, there was one from 19, December 1987 until uh, 1991, give or take, and then another one from 2000 to 2005. You could also even go back and look at 1929 through 1936 as another moment of, um, uh, of planned and organized violence by the Palestinians in, um, uh, in pursuit of their nationalist aims. Um, in each one of those cases, it was far more widespread, far more organized. Right now, you're still looking at a, at a fairly discreet number of people engaging in this activity. What I'm concerned about is the hand of Iran, the planning, uh, the funding, the training, all of those things. If that continues and if it continues to grow, we have a real problem on our hands. Um, the uh, head of the IRGC, uh, IRGC Hussein Salami, um, said recently that Iran has had its hand in 40 or 50 operations or discrete acts that take place inside the West Bank every day. Um, that is something to watch, that if the Iranians continue to invest in unrest, then we could be well on our way. Um, let me just 
add one more thought here. There is, there's a lot of talk about what that means, the, the intifada uh, concept, right? An armed uprising, an organized uprising. Um, a lot of people think about how that impacts you know, uh, regional security. And without question, that's a bad thing. Um, there is a lot of talk about how that would impact Israeli security. The last time there was an intifada from 2000 to 2005, there were people who were blowing themselves up in pedestrian malls and restaurants and nightclubs and no Israeli felt safe going anywhere. You know, getting on a bus in and of itself was an act of bravery. This is, of course, something that we're gonna have to continue to watch. Um, but what I think has been often overlooked is the impact of intifadas on the Palestinians themselves. And right now, this is what I think um, we all ought to be looking at. There is a whole generation of youngsters inside the West Bank in particular that don't remember the last time around, right? The last time uh, that you know, kids were out on the streets and engaging in this kind of activity, maybe they were, t you know, they were, I don't know, uh, these kids were just being born, right? Uh, so they don't know what the impact is of an intifada. And let me just say, it's fratricide. Right? You've got young kids going out and willing, willingly, with the encouragement of family and community, putting their own lives on the line. You've got economic devastation. Right, When Israel shuts down the West Bank, that means a loss of jobs. You see strikes happening in the West Bank where people refuse to go to work. That shuts down the economy further. The political situation becomes increasingly unstable. Leadership squabbles. Uh, among clan and family and tribe continue on the streets. Scores are being settled. I've done some work on this in the past. I've, I've compared the various uprisings over the years. None of them have worked out well for the Palestinians long term. And so whatever we're concerned about right now, there's a lot of people who say, well, it's an Israeli concern and you know they've got it coming to them because of whatever the perceived affront is that Israel's doing in the West Bank. This could have devastating consequences for the Palestinian nationalist movement. And it's for that reason that I believe that those that are advocates for the Palestinian cause should be very careful what they wish for. Thank you. And you, did you want to respond to either of their comments before you move on? Um, yeah, I just wanted to add to sort of what John talked, and, and there's two Jonathans on the stage. So, <laughs> so what the Jonathans mentioned just about sort of the uptick, and this is something that we've been tracking with the West Bank Mapping Project and, and separately. So um, the these are sort of official numbers from Israel that there were 2,500 arrests in the West Bank last year alone, right? That, and that is, that, there's, there's, that's, a, that's a really big number. It's a huge uptick from previous years. And um, when I talked about this sort of steady uptick in violence, we, when we've been looking at the numbers, we do see sort of a steady ex escalation. But what that hides, if you just look at the sheer number of attacks and responses, is the kind of attacks. So if you look at, if you can isolate sort of the, the explosive use of, um, of explosives or firearms between 2019 and 2022, you see like a 15-fold increase in, in the use of firearms and explosives in the West Banks against Israelis. So, so you, again, like numbers can tell you a lot, and if you're not looking at the right numbers, you can really miss what's going on. Um, but yeah, a 15-fold increase in, in between 2019 and 2022. Um, so, and, and the other sort of interesting metric that, that the Israel will announce periodically is how many terrorist attacks they've thwarted, and again, that is in the, that is you know in the high hundreds for 2022. So, so there's some interesting metrics that just sort of 
help us understand what's going on. Thank you, that's helpful. Colonel, coming back to you, I uh, would love to hear a bit more detail from your perspective on how Israel is responding to this violence militarily. Um, and uh, relatedly, do you think the IDF is, even, even though we may not yet at, be at an intifada, do you think the lessons from past intifadas are informing current standard operating procedures? Yeah, so the first thing that the IDF was, and the Israeli police, border police to some extent, were tasked to do was immediately to plug all of the different openings and loopholes that exist along the security barrier between Judea and Samaria and uh, other Israeli towns and cities. That was the first thing, and, is, and the IDF uh, reinforced that area quite significantly with around nine battalions. Some of them have now been returned to other duties, uh, training, etc., but that was the first task. Second task was, again, based on previous uh, experience of the IDF is that whenever you allow terrorist organizations the freedom and uh, peace of mind to plan attacks, then they will do that and they will attack uh, Israeli civilians, whether it's in Judea and Samaria or in other parts, they will launch attacks uh, further away. One specific attack was thwarted, I think, with a lot of uh, good grace and luck uh, in Yafo. Uh, uh, an assailant, a terrorist that was sent by the Lions then. He had an assault rifle and explosives in his backpack and a Koran and a bandana of the Lions then. And he was stopped in Yafo on his way to do a mass, mass attack in Israel uh, a few months back. And that was uh, stopped. But what Israel has learned, and this is, uh, I think, uh, common knowledge to other militaries, when you get the terrorists on the back foot and on the run, uh, they have less time to plan attacks and less time to execute attacks, and that is uh, what Israel is doing. So that, in a sense, is one lesson or one directive that is being implemented. What I think is uh, very important, and as somebody who was a younger man at the time, a company commander in uh, infantry, uh, the years of the Second Intifada running up to the Second Lebanon War were years with the IDF, and again connecting to tempo and scope of operations, IDF was all in fighting Palestinian terrorism in Judea and Samaria and hardly had time to uh, train and prepare for other missions. Now, unlike other militaries in the world, the IDF doesn't have that luxury of focusing on one mission and one mission only, but it has to be very diverse and ready for various threats to operate in various dimensions and uh, theaters of operations. And the IDF paid a significant price in combat capabilities in the Second Lebanon War as a result of extended fighting against Palestinian uh, terrorist organizations in Judea and Samaria in those years running up. So something to be aware of is how should the Israeli defense establishment balance the situation, imminent threats and the need to operate in Judea and Samaria as opposed to long-term military capabilities, core capabilities of a maneuvering army against bigger and more menacing threats. Currently, the Syrian armed forces do not pose a maneuver threat from Syria towards Israel. That used to be the standard military threat that Israel faced uh, over the years. That is currently not on the map, but Hezbollah has cross-border capabilities, uh, maneuver capabilities, special forces capabilities, drones, directing fires capabilities, and that is a much more potent military threat than the organizations in Judea and Samaria. So something to be very mindful of is 
how to balance between operations and being ready and fit for other missions, uh, of which there are many. Uh, and combat in urban terrain, mountainous terrain in Lebanon is another one that Israel needs to be ready for every day. That's excellent. It reminds me of the experience of U.S. forces, uh, you know, in the last 20 years where we had so uh, thousands and thousands of our service members in Iraq and Afghanistan, many of them conducting missions that they weren't trained for, right? And, and their, their core skill sets atrophy over time because they were doing something else. And yep. uh, meanwhile, China was doing what they were doing and Russia was doing what they were doing. So uh, um, getting the training that you need to conduct your, the mission and, and the skill set you're intended for. And then also uh, the balancing act that I hear you discussing, which is very much on the, on the foremind of uh, pen the Pentagon right now, is being ready for today's mission and modernizing to prepare for tomorrow's missions. And when you have a finite budget, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, excellent. John, you talked about um, Iran earlier, and I'm, I'm happy to come back to you if there's anything you want to add. But just as I hear you three talking, you know, I always try to put myself in the shoes of our allies when, when trying to understand their perspective. And, and, and I wish we had a map here. If you look at a map, all right, and you, the role of Iran is just, I mean, to state the obvious, is just pervasive. We have them supporting Hezbollah in the north with their tens of thousands of rockets, uh, some of those being precision guided. We have them trying to establish a new front in Syria, and you talked about the, 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 the pace of operations in Syria. Uh, we, of course, know about Iran's support for Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and we know about their smuggling at sea. And so, uh, and now we're talking about uh, potential activity in the West Bank. So it's basically every direction, if I'm not mistaken. And, and so um, uh, as, as, as a country that has to go thousands of miles away to preempt threats, I'm somewhat empathetic to a country that has to go 20 miles away to preempt threats. Anything you want to add about um, Iran's role in all this? Sure. Well. Um in 2021, uh, we had that 11-day war between uh, Hamas and Israel. And during that conflict, uh, we began to see little snippets uh, of revelations about Iranian activity in stoking some of the violence that was taking place inside Israel proper, what we would call mixed cities, uh, cities where Arabs and Jews were living together, as well as uh, parts of the West Bank. Um, it was described as a nerve center that uh, was conducting this activity or planning this activity. Um, and the more we dug and we scratched at it, and I've got a piece, by the way, in Foreign Policy that came out, uh, I think, in the fall of last year, where we describe what is at least known about this. Uh, but the nerve center exists. We're not sure if it's one room or several buildings or that if it moves or if it's a virtual nerve center, but it's based in Lebanon. It's a combination of uh, brain power from the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, uh, as well as Hezbollah and Hamas. And their goal is to coordinate violent activity uh, inside Israel's borders and in the, in the disputed West Bank. Um, they do that by doing outreach to the various terrorist organizations. They do it by doing outreach to various communities that are perhaps more susceptible to their message. They have been smuggling weapons across the border, uh, the Jordanian border primarily, into the West Bank. And by the way, those weapons, it's been really interesting to watch. So first of all, there's the problem of the smuggling through Jordan, and Jordan has a very long border with Israel. It's not particularly, uh, particularly well guarded, and it's an ongoing problem because other things are being smuggled into Jordan, such as drugs, uh, Captagon in particular, for those who are following that problem set, 
Uh, and those drugs are trickling into Jordanian society, causing real problems. It used to be that Jordan was the transit point for Captagon, where the pill would be sold for 20 bucks a pop in places like Saudi Arabia and UAE. They're now selling it in Jordan for about $5 a pop, and they're willing to take that haircut because it's an effort to destabilize a country that's allied with Israel and allied with the United States. So we've got an ongoing problem there with the Captagon. The weapons, of course, this is how uh, the Lion's Den and other groups are able to get their hands on these weapons. It's primarily Hezbollah-driven. But what was also interesting that we've seen over the last couple of years is how some of these weapons are making their way to the Arab-Israeli community. Now, we haven't really seen the Arab-Israeli community take up arms against Israel, but really a, a, a remarkable uh, sort of side effect of all of this is that we're watching a murder rate go up among Arab-Israelis themselves. We're seeing killing within the Arab-Israeli community. Uh, the homicide rate is through the roof, and so the Israeli police have been struggling to get a handle on all of this. But this all points to an effort by Iran to try to destabilize Israel from within. And this is all within the context of what we would describe as the war between wars or campaign between wars, where the Israelis are trying to target Iran in places like Syria, on the high seas, in cyberspace, trying to erode their nuclear capabilities and things like that happening all around the region. And meanwhile, the Iranians are trying to uh, draw closer and closer in to Israel's borders with massive amounts of weaponry, but also infiltrate Israel's borders themselves. So this is an ongoing battle. It is a quiet, asymmetric battle that is happening and has been happening for the last seven or eight years. It's a great point. And just from my perspective, it's, it's uh, and with deference to you, Lieutenant Colonel, it just seems essential to me for Israel to maintain freedom of action in Syria to deprive Iran that additional front that they're... they're Critical. It's, yeah. just, it's, not, it's not negotiable. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, I'm watching the clock. We'll go to questions here in about 10 minutes or so. Um, but uh, this is just too good. I want to keep it going a little bit, a little bit more, if I may. Switching gears, uh, John, coming to you. Um, Israel's newly appointed Minister of National Security, Itamir, Itamir Ben-Gavir, uh, recently toured the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, sparking criticism from Arab, some Arab governments and others in the international community. Um, you know, what should we make of his visit? Uh, what impact might this step or future steps like it from the new uh, government in Israel have on the situation in the West Bank? Uh, good question. And um, look, we could probably hold our own panel on, on, on this new government. <laughs> or less. Dra dra drawing a ton of criticism, obviously, around the world right now. Um, I think maybe a couple things to point out. First of all, people keep talking about how this is the most right-wing Israeli government era ever. They've said that after every election for the last 10, 12 years. Um, I think it remains to be seen exactly what this government does. I think there are intentions by you know, a handful, right? We have this uh, party that now has significant sway. It's called the Religious Zionism Party. It's actually a bloc. Um, and there are two figures, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who you mentioned, as well as, well as a guy named Betzalel Smotrich. These two guys, I think, are going to be hogging the microphone. They're going to be drawing a lot of attention. Um, but just before we jump to any massive conclusions about this government, they pulled in roughly 500,000 votes during this most recent election. It got them 14 seats out of 120. Um, and, and so they have significant sway within the government. But let's just put this in perspective. They pulled in roughly 10% of the vote. They didn't pull in 50% or 75% of the vote. It was 10% of the vote, which is roughly the size of Israel's uh, settler community, which means 
the system's working. I mean, people are saying it's the end of democracy. Actually, it's a pretty good reflection. It's an accurate reflection of Israel's democracy. Now, the question is, what are they going to do? And here you can see, I think there is a deliberate attempt to try to message to the international community and to the Palestinian community, hey, we've got a claim on the West Bank. Now, there are a lot of people who are going to say, well, that's an illegal occupation. Uh, according to the letter of the law, actually not. It's a disputed territory. It's a territory that the Israelis uh, captured in a, in a legal defensive uh, battle, in a preemptive battle in 1967. They've attempted to hand that territory over through peace multiple times over the years, and the Palestinians have rejected it. Um, it's an ongoing problem. It's not one that I think every Israeli relishes. In fact, many would probably like to relinquish this problem, but short of having a peace partner on the other side that one can trust, the Israelis are not quite ready to do so. And as long as that continues to happen, you're going to have people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich come out of the woodwork. They are going to say, well, you know what? We don't have a peace partner, and so therefore we should lay claim permanently to this, and we should be able to walk on the Temple Mount, we should be able to plant our flag wherever we want, and this is the ongoing domestic dialogue inside of Israel. It should not be a surprise to anyone. The last thing I'll just say on Ben Gvir, um, you might not like the timing of what he did, you might not like the messaging of what he did, but for a Jewish Israeli to walk on the Temple Mount, which is considered to be the holiest site in Judaism, and is also considered to be sovereign territory of Israel, um, it's pretty hard to say that he violated any laws. You may not like the message, you may not like the way he conveyed it, uh, but it certainly from our perspective, I don't think anybody would tell us that Americans can't walk where they want inside our own country. Um, we'd be hard pressed to accept that. For the audience, if you have not read Cliff May's column from yesterday, Walk Like an Israeli, it very much relates to this. You might be interested in checking that out. Anything, uh, John, you want to quickly say if, uh, about Jordan's response to the Temple Mount visit, just in addition to what you've already said? Yeah, I mean, I, I came out with a, a research memo uh, last month. Uh, it's called Neither Here Nor There, Jordan and the Abraham Accords. Um, Jordan is a, a, a problematic uh, jurisdiction right now from my perspective. The Jordanian rhetoric as it relates to Israel uh, is getting uh, quite a bit nastier than it has been in recent years. For those who uh, uh, need a quick refresher, the Israelis made peace with the Jordanians in 1994 and for many years it was the warm peace uh, that Israel enjoyed in the Arab world. Since 2020, since the Abraham Accords, we have new countries that have come in and have captured the mantle of the warm peace. UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, things are a bit warmer there, but, but in, and that is in stark contrast to what we see out of Jordan, where every Ramadan, the rhetoric ratchets up. Every time there is any kind of dispute over the Temple Mount, things in Jerusalem, even the Gaza Strip, you see the king, you see the royal court, the prime minister, the foreign minister engaging in rhetoric that does not make Jordan look like an ally. They continue, I think, to stoke this conflict um, in ways that are not helpful, right? If Jordan really was acting in the best interest of the region, in the best interest of the U.S.-led alliance, that sort of rhetoric would be saved for quiet discussions. We know the king does not like Benjamin Netanyahu. There is no love lost there. There is no bromance, okay? We can, we can accept that, but the idea that they need to be yelling at the Israelis in broad daylight, I don't think is befitting of an ally and certainly not one that is trying to protect uh, a U.S.-led system in the region. And so uh, my counsel is for Jordan to dial it back, 
Whether they do so remains to be seen. Remains to be seen. Enya, Israel's uh, new finance minister, uh, Mr. Smotrich, uh, <laughs> said earlier this week, quote, um, emphasis on his words, not mine. As long as the Palestinian Authority encourages terror and is an enemy, I have no interest for it to continue to exist, unquote. Is this attitude toward the Palestinian Authority a departure from policy of previous governments? Um, and how will this affect the ability of Israel to cooperate with the Palestinian Authority going forward? Thanks, Brad. So, um, yeah, I, he said those words. Um, I, think it is, I think it is a departure from previous governments, at least to say it so um, explicitly. But uh, this act by Smotrich, I think I would put in the category of acts of the new government, which were sort of campaign promises and things that sort of are widely um, accepted and potentially even popular within sort of the Israeli body politic, right? The idea that a Jew can walk on the Temple Mount, this is um, consistent with the status quo agreements between Israel and the WAC for the organization, the, the Jordanian organization that controls that holy site for the Muslims. It's again, not a violation of status quo. And, and, and this, this other one is interesting. There's been there's been a long-standing policy of the Palestinians to pay the salary of terrorists in the in jail. So you have a terrorist, he commits an atrocity um, against an Israeli soldier or an Israeli civilian, and he goes to jail, and then he receives a salary for him and his family th uh, for, for, for his time spent. And the worse, the more the more egregious, the more heinous the crime, the better the salary, right? And, and it, this it, is called pay to slay. It's called pay to slay, pay right? To slay. That's the yeah. that's the shorthand. Yeah. And it incentivizes terrorism, right? You don't need to be a genius to understand that. But we also know from anecdotally from hundreds of stories that when terrorists are deciding, oh, should I go and blow up this cafe? Let's see what's going to happen. Now my family is going to be lauded, and what, you know, we're going to I'm going to be I'm going to be famous, and and they're, they're going to get this this wonderful salary for the rest of my time in jail. Um, you know, th this is this does play into the cost benefit analysis of whether to blow yourself up in a cafe. So it's a pretty reprehensible, reprehensible policy. It's been going on forever. So fast forward to 2016. Uh, an American uh, tourist in Israel, a graduate of West Point, his name was Taylor Force, was stabbed to death in front of his fiance on the beachfront in Tel Aviv by a Palestinian terrorist. And this was a turning point in this conversation. And folks uh, like John, Jonathan Chancellor and myself have been sort of screaming this from the rooftops for a long time. Play to say is reprehensible, and U.S. taxpayer and Israeli taxpayer money is going into these coffers. But when uh, when Taylor Force was killed in such a brutal way, this American kid, um, a veteran. Um, it kind of woke us all up, and when it, we, we, we were uh, sort of aware of the conversation, many in Washington weren't, and the U.S. passed a law called the Taylor Force Act, um, in, it, Trump signed it into law, President, former President Trump signed it into law in 2018, which essentially um, would put an end to this policy. So the U.S. Tax, taxpayer could not go to the PA in order that they could, PA, uh, U.S. taxpayer dollars could not go to the PA until they stopped this policy, right? And that was a good thing. I think everyone can agree that you don't want your taxpayer dollars going to the salary of someone who murdered a U.S. serviceman on, in, in, in front of his fiance in, in Tel Aviv. So the Israel m modeled on the Taylor Force Act, the law, created its own uh, legislation that it, it would also withhold funding to the PA um, as, lo as long as these... Um, as long as they continued with the with the pay to slay policy, so it was it's a, it's an Israeli law modeled after U.S. law, which was uh, triggered and inspired by the by the by the murder of Taylor Force. Um, so when Smotrich decided to withhold this money from um, from going to 
to the, the, these, uh, to the PA, right, he to hold it, and instead he's going to send the money to the families of victims of terror, consistent with the pay to slay law that Israel passed in 2018. Um, he, that, that's when he made these comments. It was in the context of, well, this is going to destabilize the PA. Um, in fact, he was implementing law, uh, law that is consistent with U.S. values and law, and, and those were his comments. Now, you know, it gets into this broader question of what is Israel's responsibility to the PA, and, and how valuable is the PA, and what are they doing to sort of, to, uh, what are they doing to improve or create a st stability for Israelis and Palestinians? And I think, I think that's an open question. But as far as to these, um, as to these comments, I don't think they're helpful. I, I do think that Benjamin Netanyahu has a record of maintaining the status quo, right? He is the status, he is a status quo guy. Um, and, and so it, 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 we will, you know, it's gonna be, remains to be seen how having um, Smotrich in his new role um, in the finance ministry, how that is going to play out and whether if he continues to withhold this money implementing existing Israeli law, um, whether that could potentially have a destabilizing effect on the PA. So, so anyway, a little bit of context. Yeah, I think this falls into the category of things that, things that this new right-wing you know, right government is doing, which actually probably uh, don't deserve the kind of consternation and knee-jerk reaction that they're getting. Thank you. Can I yes, just please. add yes. quickly on that? I mean, if, if when I put the Palestinian Authority on a time scale and I look at its um, attitude towards Israel and its actions uh, against Israel, especially in international uh, forums or fora, uh, I think that what we can see over years is that they are definitely intensifying and escalating their efforts against Israel in international legal uh, aspects as well as in the media, uh, campaigning and being behind the BDS uh, effort. And uh, without uh, being the spokesperson of or anything related to Minister Smotrich, what I can say is that when Israelis look at what the Palestinians at Palestinian Authority is doing, uh, uh, being a safe haven for terrorists and uh, paying salaries for either convicted terrorists or suicide bombers with stipends to the families, uh, uh, eternal stipends, uh, and leading the international uh, efforts against Israel. When those things uh, are put together in the same equation, then Israel, many Israelis look at the Palestinian Authority and ask themselves, okay, so what's the point here? If it's an entity that is uh, totally hostile towards Israel, that teaches its children that Israel doesn't have a right to exist and doesn't exist on the maps in uh, school books of Palestinian children, which, uh, like again, like Jonathan mentioned, has refused numerous very... Uh, I would say, uh, sincere efforts by different Israeli governments to end the ongoing conflict politically. All of those things connected may be the foundation for that kind of statement, which I agree probably is uh, exactly the type of uh, fuel that anybody who is looking to demonize the Israel and their government really needs. And it's unfortunate that it's being displayed that way. Thank you for that. For the sake of time, I'm just going to jump to one last question for John, and then I'll, we'll go to the audience for questions. So if you all want to prepare any questions that you have, that, uh, that would be great. Um, in light of, John, in light of everything that <coughs> we've been saying here, what should U.S. and other allies be doing to help when it comes to the West Bank? I mean, what, what would be some policies or, or prescriptions that you would offer? Sure. Um, I think 
always the right question to ask and, and always the question that we like to answer uh, at FTD. Um, look, I think, first of all, we, we're probably one of the few countries that does have leverage with the Palestinian Authority, uh, and we should be working to shore up better leadership. Um, I mentioned Mahmoud Abbas's um, uh, seniority problem, uh, if you will. Um, he needs to go. Uh, we need new leadership there, and the U.S. actually does have some leverage uh, to help line up succession uh, and to think about ways that we can keep the West Bank stable um, uh, with new leadership. And so that should be something that we really do focus on. The continued training and funding of those Palestinian security forces will also be crucial, but they need to take the action that, that is being requested of them. And right now we're not seeing as much of that perhaps as we should be. Um, we should be working with the Jordanians to dial back on their rhetoric, but also to work with them on that border where so much of the weaponry uh, continues to flow into the West Bank. That is a major issue uh, that the Jordanians should be tackling together with the Israelis and with the United States. Uh, but the last thing that I'll point out, and this is a, probably won't come as a shock to anybody who know, <coughs> knows the work of FDD, uh, but uh, the sanctions that we have uh, put on Iran, the isolation that FDD has consistently advocated uh, for the Islamic Republic is crucial. Right? I, we, there was a time here over the last couple of years where the Biden administration was kind of flirting with the idea of getting back into the JCPOA, the 2015 nuclear deal. Um, had we done that, had we given the Iranians $275 billion in the first year of such a deal and then a trillion dollars over 10 years, the kind of support that we're seeing from Iran going into these various terrorist groups in the West Bank, it would have put it on steroids. I think we're very fortunate that we've not gotten back into that deal, but I do believe that the United States does have real work to do in terms of the continued isolation of the regime if ultimately our goal is to stymie their activity in the West Bank, not to mention in places like the Gaza Strip or Lebanon or Syria. So uh, it's time for, for pressure. Uh, my colleague Mark Dubowitz and my other colleague uh, Ord Kittry just came out with a 53-page report with 231 different recommendations of ways that we can actually put additional pressure on the regime. Um, we should be looking at every one of those options right now, not just for the West Bank, but rather for the sake of the entire region and its stability. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. We talk about um, very, you know, those very specific practical recommendations. You know, in, in the U.S. military, we talk about admiring the problem, right? What we're trying to do here is not just admire the problem. We want to come up with specific ways to, to do better, uh, to serve U.S. national security interests and that of our allies. So that's, that's the, the motivating force here. Um, can I just add one more thing to that? I think, you know, John always knocked it out of the ballpark. Great. I think it's a good, good, good way to end it. But I'll, I'll add one more thing to that. I think normalization. Right. I think that I think one of the why hasn't it become an intifada yet? I mean, what is preventing this from becoming an intifada? You have the IDF going on a nearly nightly um, basis. It's been uh, the the most deadly year for Palestinians and Israelis in a long time. Like, what is keeping the show together here? And I think there are a couple of things you can point to, and one of them is normalization. Right? You have. You have the formal normalization agreements, which FTD has been very sort of uh, in favor of and supporting and nudging along from the beginning. But then you also have these sort of informal normalization. You have Turkey, mm -hmm. which, is a, which is very important, who is now um, sort of on a charm offensive with Israel for good reason. Like There's good reason for Turkey to want to build that relationship right now. Energy is just one of them. Um, 
and, and you have this environment where the traditional Sunni allies and the traditional uh, allies of the Palestinian people around the world, in the past intifadas, were egging them on, right? And funding them and providing arms and trying to find, uh, you know, trying to find ways to sort of f add fuel to the fire. And you just don't see that in the same way now. You see Iran, right? Which, by the way, I'm sure that Saudi Arabia and, uh, and UAE, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure they're looking at the Iranian influence growing in the Palestinian terrorists and thinking, you know, what's going on here? Like, these are, these, these are Palestinians are sort of Sunni by, by the, uh, traditionally, and, and they're now sort of being financed and funded and incited by, 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 the, by the Islamic uh, uh, Republic of Iran. Yeah, by Shiites. So, so I think normal. I think pushing on, continue to push on normalization. Continue to get sort of like our, our more moderate Sunni allies to weigh in in that, and 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 uh, continue to stabilize the region is very important. And and you know, I'll also just say very quickly that we talk about the relative success of the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian security uh, forces. I think that one of the things that Mahmoud Abbas has managed to do uh, in his tenure is to create a layer of sort of wealth and, um, and vested interest in his cronies around him, right? This, he is not a, this is not a paragon for democracy. This is not, not a Jeffersonian democracy. There's a lot lacking, but he has managed to do in a way that Arafat never could or would. He's managed to create enough people with vested interest in the status quo that I think it is having a moderating effect. Um, for all of the shortcomings of the PA and for, you know, this could all be disrupted uh, with one mass casualty event. So, you know, this isn't necessarily a sustainable solution. But if you're looking at reasons how the, why this hasn't become a, an intifada yet, I think, I think that those, those are, you know, two, <coughs> two big reasons. Great insights. Thank you, Enya, and, and great conversation. Now I want to invite you all into the conversation. So if you have a question, please raise your hand, wait for the microphone, if you wouldn't mind standing up and telling us your name and affiliation. Uh, that would be great. So we have a question right here in the back. Uh, we'll start there. Hi, uh, my name is Ethan Gutman. I'm coming from the Senate side, uh, Senator Cotton's office. Um, the recent Omni uh, authorized uh, in the hundreds of millions do of dollars um, border security funds for different states in the Middle East, um, including Jordan. I think it's expected that at a minimum 150 million is gonna be allocated towards Jordanian border security. Um, I was wondering, what you thought, how, how could those funds be well used? Have they been used well in the past? Uh, is this just pie in the sky or is this going to have some sort of effectual help with, with um, Jordanian border security? Um, and how, how just to make sure there's accountability with how these funds are used or, yeah, thank you. Great, great question, thank you. Um, sure, so I, you know, I think that the U.S. involvement in the Middle East is a key pillar of, of national security for the U.S. And for the Middle East, right? Um, I think that that is, you know, I would argue that uh, continuing to have firm support for Israel and um, allies in the region is critical. And John, you know, John Shanzer mentioned the the border between Jordan and the West Bank. That is a long border. Um, and the Jordanians are struggling right now. They share a border with Iraq. You know, John and I were in Jordan in August and having these conversations, and they, they, you know, 
they, they're watching the West Bank, they're concerned about the West Bank, but that's probably, you know, in the, in the top five list of things that they're looking at right now. They've got uh, Capticon smuggling coming out of Syria and huge instability there. They're dealing with a massive refugee crisis, and the international community has not coughed up what they owe for, for those refugee camps. And I think that um, Zatari refugee camp is one of the biggest sort of active military camps in the Middle East. Um, the, the instability, like I said, the instability in Iraq and all of the, the sort of orga the terror organizations, the ISIS-inspired Shiite and Shiite and Sunni um, terror organizations on their border. So, so I mean, I I think I think uh, Brad and I and our other colleagues are on the same page that U.S. investment in that region is money well spent. John or uh, Colonel, you want to respond? Yeah, I'd say that uh, you know, in, from an Israeli perspective, I've heard uh, more than one. Uh, senior general, past general, uh, make the point that Israel, in many cases, Israel's eastern frontier, when it comes to serious military threats, is actually Jordan's border with Egypt. Uh, not in a sense of any Israeli expansionism at all, but in a sense of that is where Jordan's many... Jordan's border... Jordan's border with uh, Iraq. Iraq. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so not in a sense of any expansionism, but in a sense of... Uh, uh, understanding that Jordan is under tremendous pressure, has been over many years, uh, by different external factors. Uh, today, it's mostly Iran trying to destabilize uh, and influence and undermine. I think a lot of credit is uh, due to uh, Jordanian security services for holding it together. Tremendous internal pressure by a very hostile and unstable Palestinian part of the population, which is around 70 percent, uh, which is very pro, um, very, very militant in its outlook and applying pressure on the, the kingdom. So uh, stabilizing and keeping Jordan strong, stable, if anything could be done to strengthen its economy and have more uh, uh, positive traction in that country, that of course we all know that whenever there's strong economy, employment, jobs, and outlook, that is always a stabilizing factor. And uh, by the way, connecting to what you said about why isn't there another third intifada, because a lot of Palestinians work in Israel, they have permits, they work, they provide for their families, and they have things to think about before taking up arms and going to try to murder Israelis. So uh, positives and building, that's, that's always great. Uh, and it's absolutely crucial that Jordan remains uh, stable. And I echo the uh, very succinct points of, uh, of Jonathan about uh, also asking or demanding that uh, this type of rhetoric against Israel isn't helping at all and uh, dangerous region in a regional perspective. And uh, that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, Israel provides a very large percentage of the fresh water that Jordan uh, uses, that Jordan relies on. Don't forget gas, intelligence, and military gas. assistance. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I think that there's a, a large relationship uh, between Israel and Jordan, mutual interests, and I think populistic statements and that kind of stuff should be uh, in closed rooms and not uh, aired in the open and fuel instability. I'll just add um, maybe two other quick points. Uh, one is that in our conversations with uh, Jordanian security, it appears that for a time, they were a bit reticent in terms of direct engagement, you know, uh, in terms of forces on the border and how they engaged. Um, the rules of engagement have changed. And uh, from what I can tell, the Jordanians have been more successful in challenging the uh, smugglers and perhaps some Shiite militias 
uh, or militias associated uh, with the uh, regime in Iran. Um, but the tactics continue to change. And so now we're seeing delivery by drone, for example, of captagon or weaponry. So as the situation continues to evolve, the U.S. should be engaged more. I think there's plenty that we can do, counter drone technology, uh, satellite imagery, intelligence, things like this. There should be probably fusion centers between the Israelis, the U.S., and Jordan. Um, I know that that cooperation already exists, but perhaps there's a way to formalize it even further. By the way, maybe this is a good way of bringing the Saudis in as well. This is incredibly important to the Saudis because they're impacted by these same challenges and they have a vested interest in the security of Jordan long term. But all of these things should also be contingent upon the Jordanians working more closely and more quietly with the Israelis as opposed to what we've seen recently in that shift in rhetoric. Thank you for that question. As a, as a longtime recovering Senate staffer, it's always a great question. I can't resist. It's always a great question to ask. What is this money intended to do? Is it accomplishing its purposes? Um, is if there, it's not being used the way intended, is it a problem of political will or capability? Right. Those are two very different things. And what would an additional dollar get us? And how would that additional dollar be used? To me, those are all relevant questions here in a Jordan context. And, and in some cases, I say maybe in an Egypt context as well, some things we could discuss. Other question right here in the front, your uh, name and affiliation, if you wouldn't mind. Hi, uh, Michael Lippin with the uh, Voice of America. Uh, this is a question for the, for the panel, picking up on the uh, last question about the Israeli-Jordanian border. So uh, how do Israeli forces patrol uh, this border on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm curious to know. And also, uh, what do we know about the identities of the smugglers who are going across the border? You know, where are they from um, nationality-wise? And also, uh, what do we know about how they're physically getting uh, weapons across the border? Uh, John Chanzer just mentioned drones, which I hadn't heard of before, but um, is that one of the ways, and, and what are the other ways that they're doing it? Yeah. Right, so uh, uh, the border between uh, Israel and uh, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan is Israel's longest, around 300 miles, separated in the middle by the Dead Sea, which is crossable, has been crossed in the past by smugglers, and they continue to attempt. But the bulk of smuggling attempts are in the northern part of the border, uh, north of the Dead Sea, uh, in the area that corresponds with Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. system is based on local uh, Bedouins and Palestinians on the uh, Judea and Samaria side. And uh, groups and gangs uh, that have either family ties or otherwise ties or affiliations with the receptors on the Israeli side. Um, and it's been uh, escalating, uh, as, we, as we said. Uh, on the Israeli side, we spoke about the threats that Israel faces and the active theaters where Israel operates. So we have active, very active front of 80 miles with Lebanon, uh, with Hezbollah. And then the border with Syria on the Golan Heights is uh, about the same uh, length. Those two borders are heavily guarded with lots of systems, strong fences, and uh, physical infrastructure on the ground. The border with Gaza, uh, equally strong and uh, prioritized in terms of budget. 
the border that is the weakest link in Israel's uh, defenses is the long border with Jordan for the same reason that Jonathan mentioned before and that we've spoken about because it is a country that we have peace with and uh, very good security relations and cooperation which I hope will continue. The issue is that it is a long border with challenging terrain and in terms of budgeting and infrastructure, Israel hasn't been forced to allocate the same resources out of a strained budget for many other uh, threats that it has along the, the border. Uh, technologies are a mix of uh, your very old-fashioned uh, bulk delivery uh, and the new and uh, very challenging uh, use of uh, heavy payload drones. Um, there have been reports of Israel intercepting uh, Iranian drones that were intended to uh, Judea and Samaria um, four years ago, um, successfully intercepting those. And uh, that was uh, perhaps kind of a, a, a dry run, a trial by the Iranians to uh, import stuff from Syria over Jordan and then into the West Bank. So that's going on as well, and uh, we're seeing the Israeli defense system challenged by various techniques and, uh, and procedures from, uh, from Jordan. But I must emphasize that it's something that uh, Israel and the Jordanian security organizations are uh, working at together, understanding, exactly as said here, that this is a threat to stability. Of course, Israel is the target, but if this goes, continues to escalate, then it is really a national security problem for Jordan as well. So it's uh, ongoing, definitely a challenge, but uh, happy to say that there's a lot of interagency and international work being done. And any you know, oversight assistance and knowledge shared in an American sense is also a good thing. Unfortunately, we are rapidly approaching the end of our time together. I wish we had another hour. I've, I've learned a lot and have enjoyed it. But before we uh, move to conclusion, Anya or John, anything you want to add here at the end? No, I think we've, okay. I'm, I think we've covered it. No, I think okay. John ended All right, it there you go. Well, you, you get the last word there, Lieutenant Colonel. Thank you so much. Well, thank you all for uh, taking the time to join us here, both in person and online. Hope you learned as much as I did, and uh, thanks, thanks for tuning in and being here. For more information on FDD, our Israel program, and the latest analysis on these issues, we encourage you to visit FDD.org. That's FDD.org. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah.